This is Laura Deardo with the Becker's Ambulatory Surgery Center's podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Ernest Rivera, a gastroenterologist in Burlingame, California, and medical director of the Mid Peninsula Endoscopy Center in Burlingame. Dr. Rivera, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Now, before we dive into our questions, can you tell me a little bit more about yourself and your background? Uh, yes. As you mentioned, I'm a gastroenterologist, uh, did my training in San Diego, served in the Navy, was with the Marine Corps for a year at Camp Pendleton as a general medical officer, came back home to the Bay Area, the San Francisco Peninsula, uh, and started in practice a little over 30 years ago. And uh, currently am the medical director, as you mentioned, of the Mid-Peninsula Endoscopy Center. We are uh, affiliated with a strong community hospital, and that really what drew me back to this area was a quality of primary care and specialty physicians in this area. And um, as good as the hospital was, when we were faced with reduced compensation for endoscopy procedures, difficulty uh, getting uh, the equipment we wanted, we were scheduling cases every 90 minutes at the hospital. We were uh, sort of an appendage of the emergency room. In 1996, the community gastroenterologists banded together and uh, established the Mid-Peninsula Endoscopy Center. Got it, got it. So you were able to, you know, create that practice in order to have a, a place where um, you have a little bit more control, can do procedures more efficiently and, um, you know, really support your your practice and your patients with, with that um, new location. Absolutely. And um, probably the most Im- important uh, part of the arrangement has been the collaboration that resulted. We'd previously see each other in the hospital and maybe departmental meetings, but now, you know, we have three gastroenterologists lined up with our three rooms at the computer station. And, you know, the, the discussion over our cases, uh, patient management, um, learning from each other has just been invaluable. Absolutely. I can imagine that's a really um, important part of driving both clinical care as well as the business forward. You know, I'm wondering from your perspective, considering your experience in healthcare and and being in practice for these years, what do you see as being the top three trends that you're following in healthcare today? You know, from a gastroenterology standpoint, uh, we're very well suited for uh, televisits. So when the pandemic hit, we were able to convert fairly well right over to a couple of platforms uh, that we use. And I don't think that is going to go away for our field. So telemedicine would be uh, one of the trends for sure. Secondly, I think that, you know, the rising costs, of course, of healthcare, where you have, you know, even joint or uh, equity partner groups, you have large hospital systems, you have the medical device companies, you have the pharmaceutical companies, insurance companies, and everybody wants a piece of that dollar. So the healthcare costs will continue to be a problem. I just saw in Becker's endoscopy and ASC review this morning that CMS will be cutting reimbursement for colonoscopy going forward or asking that the patients provide a copay when a polyp is removed. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it seems like there's just a lot of different challenges there when you think about the cost of healthcare and being able to provide care. Um, And then especially, you know, as you talk about the other trend being telehealth and televisits and how that fits into the equation. So I'm wondering when you, as as somebody who, uh, you know, is a 
has your private practice there and trying to run the business. Um, how are you adjusting to some of these trends coming down when, you know, the, the costs are kind of constantly being compressed? I think the, uh, you know, the first part was to uh, secure some ownership in an endoscopy center. Other ancillary income is possible going forward. I believe you wanted a third trend as well for healthcare and gastroenterology. And a big one, Laura, is the epidemic we're looking at, the freight train of fatty liver disease. So uh, with transient elastography, we're able to identify patients that are at risk for going on to cirrhosis with a diagnosis of NASH. Although, you know, the precise diagnosis would require a liver biopsy, this technology now allows us to look at patients in a uh, relatively cheap, non-invasive manner and identify those patients that uh, either have NASH in all likelihood or at high risk for that. And this population is continuing to grow as America becomes more and more overweight. So I think that's a definite trend in gastroenterology that, uh, that we're seeing. Got it. Absolutely. Um, that's really interesting to hear. You know, when you think about the future, um, especially those patients who are um, increasingly, you know, overweight and whatnot, is that something, a trend that you're preparing for? Or are there other trends too that amongst the patient population that you really have to think about when you're planning on, you know, where your practice is going? We're struggling with that because um, it's basically a lifestyle issue. You know, America is eating more exercising less, drinking more alcohol. And what it's done actually is we, the, the laboratory values, the, the major labs have raised the normal liver enzyme level to 60, which is actually grossly abnormal. So the first thing we advise our primaries is to lower that threshold and send people that have ALTs over 35 for men, over 25 for women for that transient elastography. But in terms of management, to answer your question, um, that's a toughie. Um, we're, we're trying to put together access to dietitians. There aren't enough of them. My associate, Sarah Samashima, she is interested in public health and programs that help people with these issues. So, yeah, I think all of us are looking at ways to help people with their lifestyle because obviously, whether you have diabetes or fatty liver disease, the first thing to do is to lose weight. Absolutely. That, that makes a ton of sense and easier said than done, I know. So in thinking about your uh, practice as well in the endoscopy center, where is the best opportunities for growth over the next one to two years? Uh, you know, we have currently seven outstanding gastroenterologists. Each of them will probably continue to grow their practice. We had uh, two associates uh, retire last year. So probably as with a lot of endoscopy centers or ASCs, we're looking to bring in new gastroenterologists to, to get us a little bit busier. There are certainly staffing efficiencies we could, we could work on. Although it's not a huge income producer, I think that more upper endoscopies need to be done. In our area, demographically, East Asian-born patients, uh, Latin American-born patients are at high risk for stomach cancer, frequently have helicobacter intestinal metaplasia. So uh, I've encouraged our younger gastroenterologists to add on an upper endoscopy to these patients when they come in for their screening colonoscopies. And we frequently find helicobacter or chronic gastritis with intestinal metaplasia, which is a precursor to stomach cancer. And then the other population group that should get the upper endoscopy done at the time of colonoscopy would be 
the uh, Caucasian overweight middle-aged male coming in for his screening or surveillance exam. And they may have heartburn uh, once a week. They might downplay their symptoms. Um, but if you press them uh, frequently, they will report some upper GI symptoms. So that's one sort of a pet project of mine to get more upper endoscopies done in conjunction with the colonoscopies. Got it. Got it. That's, you know, so interesting to think about, but obviously, as you mentioned, it sounds like it's really helpful um, and important for patients, um, especially those at risk to catching some of these issues early and hopefully avoiding, you know, um, cancers going forward. Exactly. Got it. Got it. Well, you know, thank you so much for sharing that. Now, before we wrap up our conversation, I'm wondering, you know, what are you most excited about today and what makes you nervous? Um, I'm most excited about the technologies that we have access to, the fact that we can continue to improve our technique and ability to find precancerous colon polyps. We're looking at confocal microscopy. We're looking at the artificial intelligence program. The first one's out, a little bit expensive, but we're considering that. So it's a field where the technology is allowing us to do a better job. And, you know, I'm just excited about the young folks we bring in that bring in new ideas that will uh, continue to drive us and keep us vital going forward. Absolutely. You know, I, I think that's great to hear. Is there anything that you're concerned about or, or kind of keeps you up at night? Uh, thank you for asking me that question, Laura, because uh, a lot of us in medicine are concerned that the valuation of the work that physicians do nationwide has been diminished. Uh, if you look at media, social media, and what happened to maybe the epitome of a physician in the United States, Dr. Anthony Fauci, a gentleman uh, who, you know, has just basically gone to work every day taking care of HIV, Ebola patients, and yet he's been criticized. And there's a faction in the United States that feels he's not doing a good job. And I think that's a concern I have. I know that the current political legal system we have where malpractice cases are brought to a jury of lay people just doesn't make any sense because the technical side of our procedures is is not something that can be understood over the course of a uh, several-day trial. So something like a three-person panel of independent specialists in the physician's field to review these cases before they go to court I think would save billions of dollars in the United States going forward. Those two things are going to be tough for us as physicians to change, but what we can change is our involvement with the communities in which we live. We were actually evicted from our space in San Mateo down the road several years ago and kind of a shotgun marriage with our local healthcare system, our local hospital system that is based out of Sacramento actually, so about 100 miles away. And um, with that, we find that at the hospital, for example, the executive committee has much less teeth. We don't have a local hospital board that listens to our uh, physician leaders at the hospital. And then at our endoscopy center, you know, our governing board now is three RNs to two medical doctors. And, you know, the RN administrators within a lot of the systems can be quite good. And I've, I've listened to several of them on your podcast and their perspective is, has been really helpful. But, you know, within these systems, you have good clinical nurses who become heads of departments and kind of move up the ladder 
And all of a sudden, they're in charge of a big division of several ASCs, uh, maybe hundreds of doctors, and probably uh, a good example of the Peter Principle, because a lot of times they just don't have the understanding of what we, in particular in gastroenterology, do in the endoscopy suite. And with that, sometimes decisions are made that adversely impact our ability to fully care for our patient. And of course, the physician's primary mission is to the well-being and health of their patient. So I just see that physicians have, have sort of lost their seat at the table. And I would hope going forward that we step up and push back against policies uh, that specifically uh, hinder our ability to reach our full potential and to fully care for our patients. Dr. Rivera, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been a really fantastic discussion, and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Thank you very much. Take care, Laura.